0: Well, it's good to be with you here this morning. Um, as Scott said, as we talked a while back, um, he extended the invitation to, to speak, and I always consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to share uh, what God is teaching me through his word with his people. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you here this morning. I want to start by just saying that uh, life is hard, and if I'm honest, this wasn't what I expected when I entrusted my life to Jesus. I came to faith as a child, and I can't remember a day in my life when my faith in Jesus has not been part of how I understand myself and the world around me. And I have many experiences of God's presence in my life over the years I can still remember and feel what it was like when I was 14 on a short-term trip to Mexico under a star-filled sky where I palpably experienced God's love. I can recall when the Bible came alive for the first time, and I realized that God was speaking to me personally through his word. And in my journey with Jesus, I can share story after story Of God's miraculous provision but whether I've forgotten or I wasn't listening or I just wasn't told when I entrusted my whole life to Jesus I don't remember anyone telling me that life would be this hard do you do you remember being told to expect the pain and rejection of broken relationships the sorrow and devastation of loss the stress of financial instability, the despair of feeling helpless or powerless or trapped, the disappointment of your own inadequacies and failures, the frustration of being misunderstood, confusions about, about the uncertainties of the future. You know, praise God, we, we have a God who loves us and cares for us, But over the last few years, I've been wrestling wrestling with how to understand and navigate the difficulties of life, and what does it mean to truly trust God. And this message is an invitation to join me as I try to understand what the writer of Proverbs 3 meant when he wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for the opportunity again to be here, to be with your people. I pray as we look at your word together, Lord, that you would speak to each of our hearts in the places that we are, that you would... uh, Open our minds and hearts to hear what you have to say. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 are some of the most popular and widely known verses in the Christian world. For as long as I can remember, I've seen these verses on plaques or house decorations or wall hangings in Christian homes and churches. I think they're displayed because they're short, And they seem simple. When times get tough, I can look at the plaque on my wall and remember, oh, yes, if I just trust in God, everything will work out. But is that the point of these verses? I believe that it's possible that in its familiarity, we've misunderstood the weight and the cost of living a life of trust. So I want to challenge us to evaluate the extent to which we are applying the principles of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 in our lives. Now, I want to begin with what we call in education a diagnostic assessment or a pre-assessment. So a pre-assessment allows a teacher to determine a student's individual strengths, weaknesses, knowledge, and skills prior to instruction so these types of assessments are used to develop a baseline to diagnose potential challenges that must be faced and then to guide in lesson planning and so I'm going to give you a diagnostic self-assessment this morning so don't worry I'm not going to be collecting these and they won't affect your final grade um, <clears throat> but we're going to start with this I want to give you this pre-assessment to establish your baseline as we unpack these verses together use it to identify your strengths your weaknesses and to recognize your challenges and ultimately to guide you as you develop your plan for growing your life of trust so are you ready here it is I've rewritten Proverbs 3 5 through 6 and I'm going to put the original verses on the screen and then I will read you my version And what I want you to do is I want you to determine which of these two versions most accurately reflects the pattern of your life. Okay, so first we have God's version. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Okay, now my version. Trust in the Lord with part of your heart and lean mostly on your own understanding. In some of your ways, acknowledge him and be willing to invite God to join you on the path of your choosing. So which of these two versions most accurately reflects the pattern of your life? For those of you who identify with my version, but desire to have a life characterized by God's version, let's unpack these verses together. So trust in the Lord. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? First of all, there's a difference between faith as belief and faith as trust. So faith as belief is the mental acceptance that the message of the gospel is true. These are truths we mentally embrace when we believe. Truths like Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. Jesus is the one way to be reconciled to God. But faith as trust is the choice to remain faithful even when the message of the gospel doesn't feel true, when life doesn't turn out the way we expect, when God seems absent, when we, like Jesus on the cross, feel like we've been forsaken. There's a difference between faith as belief and faith as trust. For 17 years, I traveled on planes, we lived for 17 years in Beirut, Lebanon, and I traveled on planes between the U.S. and Lebanon every couple of years, uh, around 18 to 23 hours each trip with four children, so it was brutal. But when I fly, whether my trip is long or short, easy or brutal, every time I get on a plane, I believe that I will safely get to my destination actually don't think about it very much. It's something I mentally accept as true. It's why I get on the plane. And so far, that belief has been justified. But I can remember one flight in particular. My plane hit bad turbulence, and I was scared. Um, I don't know if anyone here has experienced anything like that, but I started to think about who's going to miss me. How painful it's going to be to die. I started wishing that I had listened to that ridiculous safety demonstration at the beginning of the flight. (laughs) I began to seriously doubt my belief that I would get to my final destination. And in that moment of fear and doubt, I had to make a choice to trust I had to emotionally, mentally, and physically trust that the plane was built to handle the storm, that the pilot had been trained and was capable of navigating the turbulence, trust that in spite of my fears and doubt, the pilot would get me home. And I think Scott said, he mentioned this last week, do you realize that Jesus is our pilot? And it's one thing to believe that he's ultimately going to get us to our final home in heaven. But it's another thing to know him and trust him in the midst of the storms of life. And that brings me to my second point, which is we develop our ability to trust in times of fear and doubt. And this is where I think we get confused at times we sometimes think that trust is a sort of calm, peaceful, zen feeling, a lack of worry. But trust is not the absence of fear and doubt. Trust occurs at the moment when your actions move you past your fears and doubt. There is little need to trust the boat in calm waters, we are driven to trust the boat in rough seas. There is little need to trust God when life is following our plan. But we are driven to trust God when our plans fall apart and life no longer makes sense. Now, you might be thinking, if that's the case, why in the world would I want to live a life of trust? Like, Who wants a life characterized by fear and doubt? No one gets on a boat or a plane hoping for a rough ride. We all prefer calm seas, but like it or not, trust increases our capacity to know God. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the concept of a comfort zone, and a comfort zone is a set of experiences or circumstances where we feel safe or at ease or in control Uh, it's what we desire by default and fear and discomfort are the main obstacles that keep us from stepping outside of our comfort zones but psychological studies have shown that it's not healthy for us to remain in our comfort zones and as we push ourselves beyond the limits of our comfort we grow and we adapt and we become more productive Not only that, but as we push ourselves, our comfort zones actually expand, and we become able to thrive in more and more situations. And I believe trust works the same way. We all have trust zones, things and issues and areas where we're comfortable trusting God, and honestly, areas where we are not. Where do you struggle to trust God? And I've been struggling a bit to trust God with my children. For 15 years, I chose to raise them in a predominantly Muslim culture, and then my wife and I chose to move them to the U.S. at significant times in their lives. I have children with special needs, and at times I feel like I can't give them what they need. And I'm afraid at times that my choices will have negatively impacted them. It's fear and doubt and discomfort that keep us from expanding our trust zones. But if we can get beyond our fears, as we trust God more and more, not only our ability to trust him grows... But our capacity to know him grows as well. So maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, I'm willing to trust God. But here's the rub. Trust can be an active choice or a passive response. So there's a difference between actively trusting God or responding to God in trust. Both are good, but they're very different ways to live your life. I worked a number of years at Honey Rock Camp up in northern Wisconsin when I was a college student. And one of the team-building activities that we did at the camp was a trust fall. And if you don't know what a trust fall is, basically you stand on a tall stump or, or tree or surface with a group of people behind you, and then you lean back and you trust that they'll catch you. And so a trust fall requires you to make an active choice. To make a decision to fall back. To act and then trust that the group will catch you. When I mentioned being in a plane in the midst of turbulence, I didn't choose to enter that storm. The storm, ha- the storm happened. But I had a choice in the midst of that turbulence to either panic or trust. So there's a difference between making an active choice and trusting that God will show up, that he will catch you when you lean into him, and responding in trust when things go wrong. A lady once approached the evangelist D.L. Moody and told him that she'd found a wonderful promise in the Bible that helped her overcome fear. And her verse was Psalm 56.3, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And D.L. Moody replied, Why, I have a better promise than that. And he quoted Isaiah 12.2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. If we are only willing to trust God as a passive response, we will miss the opportunity that only comes through active choices that expand our trust zone and grow our knowledge and experience of God. Now, this is just the beginning because the writer of Proverbs doesn't just tell us to trust in the Lord, but he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, we generally trust the Lord with part of our heart, the salvation part. When we first believe in Jesus, it's exciting, we're saved. We get our one-way plane ticket to heaven And we're more than willing to trust the Lord with our sins and with our eternal destiny. But then we get to the boarding gate, and we find that we're not allowed any carry-on luggage. God wants us to check all our luggage at the gate. He doesn't just want the salvation part of our heart. He wants our hopes, our dreams, our expectations. He wants our children. He wants our comforts. He wants our finances. He wants our successes. He wants our failures. He wants our singleness. He wants our marriage. He wants all of our relationships. He wants all of our time. I remember sharing the gospel with a friend of mine when I was a kid. And and I made an argument to my friend, which I later found out was called Pascal's wager and the argument was uh, wouldn't it be better to believe what i believe and find out that i'm right than believe what you believe and find out that i'm right so basically i've come to realize that i was saying why don't you just trust jesus with the salvation part of your heart what do you have to lose and now i realize what you have to lose is everything, because all means all. Now, God is merciful. He lets us sneak things on the plane, our comforts or our dreams. Sometimes we hide our children behind us as we board, or a relationship we know doesn't honor God. But I believe those things come at a cost, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. A few years ago, I finished my doctorate in education and I wrote my dissertation on the relationship between critical thinking and culture. And if we are not supposed to lean on our own understanding, it begs the question, did I just waste years focused on trying to understand and develop critical thinking? But thankfully, I am confident that this verse does not mean don't think. It's a reminder that our understanding is limited by our experience. I don't know about you, but I tend to make decisions based on my experience or the experience of others. If I want to go on vacation, I Google it and I read reviews or I go someplace that I've been before if I want to buy a product I check how many stars it has in the user reviews or I buy a product that I've bought before if I want to watch a new show I head over to Rotten Tomatoes I look at the reviews and if it's not above seventy percent I don't consider it we make decisions based on our experience Uh, or we make decisions based on the experiences of others. We make decisions based on our understanding of what is best. But in matters of faith and trust, we cannot lean on or rely on our own experiences or even the experiences of others because our understanding is limited by our experiences in this life. But God's understanding is eternal. Now, that might sound interesting, but what does it really mean? God sees our lives through an eternal lens. He sees our beginnings, He is with us in the present, He knows our future. He sees how the choices we make now impact our eternity in ways that honestly, we have a hard time getting our minds around. I'm not just talking about the difference between heaven and hell. The Bible makes it clear that the choices we make in this life impact the eternal rewards we receive as believers in heaven. When you actively choose to trust in God, that means that you will make decisions that the world will not understand. How can we choose to live lives of active trust that are more difficult than they need to be as a result of our faith? We need to embrace that a life of trust is rooted in the promise of eternal reward. Now, this is one of the Bible's more difficult teachings. If we are all forgiven, if we will all be made perfect, then how can there be a difference in eternal rewards? You know, according to our understanding, there's no qualitative difference between two things that are perfect. But we cannot lean on our understanding. The Bible clearly states that there are different rewards in heaven. I want us to read 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 out loud and together with the next Three slides. So if you will join me, we'll start here. But the grace God has given me, I laid foundation. Oh, sorry, that's not the right one. Okay. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, The builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames. This is the word of the Lord. The theologian Jonathan Edwards gave, in my experience, the best illustration of how we can all be perfect in heaven and yet receive different rewards. And he gave the example of a cup and a basin. And he described heaven as being cast into God's ocean of happiness. Now, if I throw this cup into the ocean, it will be perfectly filled. But if I throw this basin into the ocean, it too will be perfectly filled. And what Jonathan Edwards said is, but the basin will be filled with more than the cup. And he wrote, for all shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. Remember your trust zone? As you expand your trust zone, you expand your capacity to know God. And as you expand your capacity to know God, you expand your capacity to be filled with his happiness. And I believe, like Edwards, that this is our reward, the promise of a fuller experience of the love of of Jesus in eternity. Because the only incentive to live a life of active trust is the promise of eternal reward. You know, I said earlier that God is gracious. He lets us sneak things on the plane. But those things come with a cost. And this is what I mean. Whenever we fail to surrender something to God, we lose the opportunity for eternal reward. Now, this is not easy because trust requires us to relinquish the world's concept of what is best. Have you ever noticed that when you board a plane, if you've flown before, that they purposely have you walk through the first class and business class seats? Why do they make us do that? They want to show us what we're missing. They're trying to convince us that our experience could be so much easier if we're only willing to pay the price. And that's exactly Satan's message. He wants us to look at our economy ticket and then compare our situation to the passengers around us, both inside and outside the church. He wants us to look around and wonder, well, why did he get a window seat? Why does she get a specialty meal? Why do those people up front get these full reclining seats? Where is my deluxe entertainment system? He wants us to fight over our overhead space. Satan wants us to ruthlessly defend our airline pillows and blankets and be willing to do whatever it takes for an upgrade. He wants to convince us to do to do whatever we can to make this life more comfortable. And Satan makes a pretty convincing case. The easier life looks a lot better. First class comes with a lot of benefits. Why would I want the stress of a life of faith and economy when I can have the comforts of first class? But if you think about it for a moment, whether we're in first class or business or economy, we all eventually arrive at the same destination, the judgment seat of Christ. And whether we're in first class or business class or economy, when the plane hits turbulence, we all feel it. And who's more excited about reaching the final destination? The person crammed in the back of the plane who has no leg room and who's been longing to disembark? or the passenger who is fully reclined at the front of the plane. And every once in a while, God comes over the PA and says, you know, Uh, we're looking for someone willing to give up their blanket or window seat or business class seat, or God forbid their first class ticket. Anyone willing to do so will be compensated with an eternal reward at our final destination. Or maybe it sounds like, I'm looking for someone willing to give up their comforts, their financial security, their safety, or God forbid, their lives. Anyone willing to do so will be richly rewarded in eternity. Have you ever heard God make that announcement? Are you hoping he won't ask you to give up your seat? God usually won't force a person to respond to his general announcement. But if we don't respond, we may end up losing a chance for an eternal reward. I work with an organization called Ideas, and we are an organization of Christian professionals who see our work as a holy calling and who use our skills among the forgotten and overlooked in Christ-centered Transformational programs around the world. The educators and agriculturalists and community developers and healthcare professionals and businessmen and women that I work with have heard and responded to God's announcement. Lean not on your own understanding because our understanding is limited by our experience, but God's understanding is eternal. A life of trust is rooted in the promise of eternal rewards. And trust requires us to relinquish the world's concept of what is best. Now I know we don't have unlimited time, so just let me say this about the next phrase. In all your ways, acknowledge him or submit to him. To acknowledge God is to trust that God knows what he's doing. To acknowledge God is to trust that you can depend on him. And this, like most of what I'm saying this morning, is easier said than done. In my life of faith, I've often wondered if God actually knows what he is doing at times, it seems like I know far better than he does for how my life should be going. But I don't, and neither do you. And he will direct your path. We've reached the end, right? This is where we all breathe a sigh of relief, because he will direct our path, or as some versions say, he will make our path straight, which must mean that we'll all it will all work out, right? Well... Yes and no. Before we get too comfortable, let's consider the paths of the great men and women of faith and trust in the Bible. God directed Abraham's path to living his whole life as a wanderer in a foreign land, to sending away his oldest son, Ishmael, to almost having to sacrifice his son, Isaac, to dying as a stranger in a strange land. Okay, so maybe that's a bad example. What about David? Well, God directed David's path to a life of fleeing from enemies and hiding in caves, a heritage of sons who turned against him. All right, what about Moses? A path of dislocation from his family, wandering in the desert for 40 years, death before reaching the promised land. Daniel, exile, betrayal, and the lion's den. Ezekiel, to a stubborn and hard-hearted people who rejected his message. Elijah, a mountain pool where he cried out in despair and wanted to end his life. The Apostle Paul, beaten, rejected, and ultimately beheaded by Caesar. James, an early death. Peter, a brutal death. The Apostle John, exile on an isolated island. What about the path of Jesus? He most likely lost his father at an early age. He was misunderstood and rejected by those he loved. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He felt abandoned by his heavenly father. And he was crucified at the tender age of 33. Before we breathe a sigh of relief, we must realize that the testimony of Scripture gives us every reason to believe that a God-directed path will be difficult. How often do we say or sing that we want to know Jesus more without recognizing what it might require of us to walk that path? In fact, without an eternal perspective, a God-directed path isn't worth it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, the Apostle Paul wrote, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I used to think that the trials of this life were things like death or persecution but I've come to understand that the cost of faith isn't always these external things. I suffer because I desperately want my children to know Jesus and fear that they won't make that choice. I suffer because I want to overcome my sin and I fail so often. I suffer because I want more of Jesus and he sometimes seems beyond my grasp. I suffer because... I have a vision for who I can become that I just don't feel capable of living out. The world doesn't suffer over such things. And if the gospel isn't true, it is not worth the anguish to suffer over these things. We are fools to suffer over such things if the gospel isn't true. But the good news is the message of the gospel is true. And with an eternal perspective, a God-directed path is infinitely worth it. I want you to read with me what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7, 7 and 8, out loud and together. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So how do we trust? We realize that the failure to trust is at the root of sin. Most sin from Eden to the Antichrist is a failure to trust that God knows best. We accept that life is hard. We trust that God is good. We live like the world is not our home. And we hope that our reward is yet to come. Life is hard. And if I'm honest, this isn't what I expected when I entrusted my life to Jesus. Don't get me wrong, I expected difficulties. But I didn't expect a life of trust would be this hard. What I've been learning is that I constantly need to recalibrate my expectations with an eternal perspective. I constantly need to remember what it says in Hebrews 11 further on from where we read this morning when talking about those who live a life of faith and trust, that none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us. Now, some of you might be sitting here this morning and thinking, actually, my life isn't that difficult. Uh, Things are pretty good. And if that's your situation, praise God. This message is not meant to be an indictment in any way against the stable, joyful, and enjoyable Christian life. Uh, We are meant to walk our lives with Christ joyfully, and as long as God is directing your path, that is the best path for you. It's not my intent to make anyone feel guilty about the path they are walking. We've all been issued different tickets on the flight from the child in Africa to the daughter in Silicon Valley. All that matters is that we let God direct our path and that we walk that path faithfully. So please don't get me wrong. I have no intent to make anyone feel bad about the joyful Christian life. But at the same time, I do want you to go back to our pre-assessment results and ask Are we choosing to live a life of active trust where at least some of the decisions we are making make no sense to the world around us? Or are we content to settle only for a life of responding in trust when the opportunity arises? Are we willing to take risks to expand our trust zone? Are we seeking to trust God with all our hearts Or are we content only giving him parts of our heart? And are the decisions in our life to trust God rooted in the promise of eternal rewards? Or are the choices that we're making limited by our own understanding? And are we prepared to let God direct our paths, whatever the consequences? The challenge to trust God is an opportunity. It's an investment in our eternity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. It is infinitely worth it. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for the reminder in my own heart to trust you these are things that I know but I so easily forget and I pray that as we make a million choices each day that we would bring you into those choices that we would seek to live lives of active trust with the promise of eternal reward as we follow you with all of our hearts. I lift up this message and these words to you this morning as an act of worship. In Christ's name I pray, amen.